Tonight's show doesn't have a specific theme, although it's amazing how much the stories ended up being closely related. We're going to hear from Saul Fusener, Kate Braun, and Karen Fitzgerald. Pat Spaulding will be our MC. She'll introduce each teller to you. So join me now in welcoming Pat. Thanks, Amy. <clears throat> Hello, everyone. I've been watching Carol in the small little um, <laughs> postage stamp photo. She's on Walkabout in New Zealand. I thought you had to be in Australia for that, but New Zealand is close enough. First up for our storyteller, we are going to have Saul Fusener. He lives in Hamden, Connecticut with his wife, two young children, and a ferocious hound dog named Archie. He is the host and producer of Songs and Stories, a show of storytellers and singer-songwriters in New Haven. Saul has an MFA in dramatic writing from NYU and with several screenwriting credits, is also the department chair in creative writing at ACES Educational Center for the Arts. Tonight, he'll share a story that is part of his original collection, The Ghosts of Poland. His story is titled, Willie. Okay, Saul, you're up. I was the cultural educator on a Holocaust trip to Poland. And in order to get the teenagers who were going on this trip ready, we taught night classes all through the fall and the spring. And at the last night class before we went to Poland, a Holocaust survivor who was going to be joining us on our trip came to the class. His name was Willie. He had one sort of lazy or glass eye on the left side and the skin of his eyelid looked pushed forward and tight against it. He seemed completely angry. He said to us and to the kids, you are not going on a vacation. You are going to be witnesses. This is not a holiday. This is witnessing history. And I felt like Willie seemed like a person so tortured in the past that perhaps he had lost his sense of humor. Perhaps he had lost his sense of fun. But I wanted to make a connection to this person. I had been teaching Holocaust studies for 10 years. And here was a person who had lived that history. I wanted very much to be connected to that person. And then I found out that Willie would be my roommate all across Poland. So on the first night we got into Krakow and I found Willie to be a, a very pleasant uh, and generous roommate although he still seemed distant to me, like there was a wall between us. He had lived in New Jersey for almost 70 years, but he still struggled with English. And I remember one thing he said on that first night was, I cough so much, I feel like I am smoke three packs. And I loved the way he expressed that. And so I wrote it down in my little book in which I keep quotations that I like. And the next day we went to the Ramah Synagogue in Krakow. And as the cultural educator, it was my job to tell the story 
of the Rabbi Yom Tov Lippmann Heller. In the Ramah synagogue, there is a cemetery behind it. And all the important rabbis have gravestones within a little gated in area right next to the synagogue, right behind it. But one very important rabbi, the 17th century sage, the rabbi Yom Tov Lippmann Heller has his grave all the way on the other side of the cemetery by the wall in a place of complete dishonor. It was my job to tell the story at the graveside. So I went to the grave and I was facing everyone else who was on the trip. And I told them beside the grave itself, I told them the story of the Rabbi Yom Tov Lippmann Heller. Now in the 17th century, the rabbi at the Ramah synagogue had to go all around the community to collect alms for the upkeep of the synagogue. And everyone gave a little bit of money, but there was a wealthy man in town named Moshe the miser. And Moshe the miser never wanted to give money to the rabbi Yom Tov Lippmann Heller. And rabbi would say, Moshe, you have so much money, can't you just give a little bit? And Moshe would say, I, I don't feel like I can this week. Maybe come back again next week. Maybe I can give it at a later time. And Yom Tov Lippmann Heller would always walk away, not getting anything from Moshe the miser. So one day, Yom Tov had just had it. And he said to Moshe, listen, you are wealthy. Everyone else gives, you never give. If you keep up this way, when you die, you will be buried in the place of dishonor in the cemetery, as far as possible from the synagogue. And Moshe the miser said, I know, I know, but I, I just can't, I can't do it this week, maybe next week. So the day came when Moshe the miser died and Rabbi Yom Tov Lippmann Heller went to the elders of the synagogue and said, we need to bury this person in a place of dishonor by the far wall. And, and so it was done. And right after that, Yom Tov Lippmann Heller started to notice that people were not giving as much money to the synagogue. So he went to the grocer and he said to the grocer, I noticed recently people just aren't giving like they used to give. And the grocer said, oh no, I, I couldn't afford to give as much as I gave. It was Moshe the miser who would come to me and he would give me a little extra money for me to give. And now that he's gone, I can't do that anymore. And Yom Tov Lippmann Heller was scandalized and he, he went to the blacksmith and he said, I, I heard this story from the grocer about, about Moshe the miser. The blacksmith said, yeah, it's the same for me. Do you think I could really give that much without Moshe the miser? And it was the same all across town. And the rabbi Yom Tov Lippmann Heller realized that not only was Moshe the miser not a miser, but he was the most generous sort of person, a person who would give without asking for anything in return. And Yom Tov Lippmann Heller felt so bad, he went to the elders and said, I've done a terrible thing. You must bury me also in the place of dishonor beside Moshe the miser in the far side of the cemetery by the wall. And that's why this gravestone sits here. And when I finished my story, Willie jumped on me and threw his arms around me. And it was suddenly this, this incredible, joyous, boyish 
87-year-old man that I had never seen before came out of Willie. And as roommates in Poland, we both became younger people. It was like we were college roommates. I in my 40s, he in his 80s, but it was like we were 20 years old, sitting on our beds and our boxers and our white t-shirts, drinking Polish vodka out of Dixie cups and telling each other stories. And one day he said to me, I have a woman in New Jersey. And I said, okay. And he said, she is Polish. And he looked like, like he was ashamed of this because although Willie was Polish, when he said Polish, he meant Polish Catholic, not, not a Jewish woman. And I said, Willie, you're 80 something years old. You only speak Polish. You live in New Jersey. Where are you gonna find an octogenarian Jewish woman who speaks Polish in New Jersey? Forgive yourself. And Willie loved that. And it made us that much closer. The only time I saw the angry Willie again was when we got to his hometown of Kielce. Now Kielce in 1946 was the site of the biggest killing of Jews after the Holocaust, the Kielce pogrom, where 46 Jews were killed in a single building. And we stood across from the building and Willie told us the story of the Kielce pogrom. And he also told us that when he was a child in Kiltza, that building was special to him because on the first floor was a candy factory and he was too poor to afford candy, but they needed to make the candy square to wrap it in, in the plastic. So they would cut off the ends of the candy to make it square and they would give the poor children the candy ends. So Willie loved the building where after he left Poland, never returning until right now, they killed 46 Jewish people in that building. And Willie got so angry, he said, if you need to piss, piss here, piss all over this town. And then it was done, he'd gotten it out of him. And Willie became the joyous young roommate with me once again. Now, when we got to Auschwitz, the other Holocaust survivor with us told his story of arrival right there on the tracks at Auschwitz-Birkenau but Willie didn't want to talk to the teens about this place. He walked with me and we walked past the women's barracks and Willie said, I speak beautiful Polish. And I said, I know Willie, I know you speak beautiful Polish. Why are you telling me this? And he said, when I was here, they thought I was a Pole, not a Jew. They thought I was a Polish Catholic prisoner. You understand? And I said, yes. And he said, because of this, I didn't get to leave Auschwitz until a month after the other Jews had left. And during that month, I sat there and I said, when I get out of here, I want to go to that place where they've never heard of a Jew. And I said, Willie, I would have felt that way too. And he said, but do you know what I did? As soon as I got out of here, I went to the first Jewish household I could find and I had a meal with them. And I said, Willie, I would have done that too. And we walked towards the, the gates of Birkenau to leave. Now, Willie's brother also survived the Holocaust. And after they were reunited in New Jersey, they visited with each other every single day, except when Willie was in Poland. When Willie was in Poland, 
I felt like he was my brother. Thank you, Saul. That was a beautiful story. Took us a, a story about the power of storytelling. Told it very well. Thank you. And coming up next, we have Kate Braun, who grew up in the Midwest, lived in New England for more than 20 years until recently moving back, where she now lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Trained as an actor, Kate has worked with various theater companies local to the seacoast, including Threshold Stage, Act One, New Hampshire Theater Project, and Seacoast Rep. She's taught acting classes in Boston, led creative dramatics in South Carolina, directed theater productions in West Virginia, and has worked as an arts administrator in Kentucky. After turning 60, <laughs> I remember it well, and thinking about moving back home, Kate never could have imagined what her return to the Midwest would be like. Let's find out in her story, Hindsight 2020. Kate. Thank you, Kat. I love New England. Having lived 20 some years in Exeter, New Hampshire, I felt very comfortable there. I love the quaint historical New England towns with their unique shops and galleries. I love New England restaurants with their fresh seafood. I love the New England landscape with its great variety. You have the coastline as well as the mountains. So why did I leave? Well, I was born and raised in the upper Midwest where I still have family and friends. And Though I had acquired many good friends during my time in New Hampshire, I have no family there. And after living the last 10 years alone, I started to think maybe it's time to move back home. But as I said, I love New England. So the idea of leaving it behind was put on the back burner until an incident with a friend got me thinking of that adage. Blood is thicker than water. <laughs> One day after receiving some disparaging words from a mutual acquaintance, I turned to my friend looking for a little reassurance saying, I just needed a hug. As I embraced her, however, the thought occurred to me, I guess she's not much of a hugger because she's not really hugging me back. And it was that feeling of disappointment the, the physical letdown in that half a hug, which prompted me to set plans in motion to move back home where I'd be among family. I set my sights on Minnesota, where some of my relatives live. In fact, I had lived in Minneapolis for a short time after college, and I always felt somehow I'd end up back there someday. So after a year of purging and painting, talking to realtors and movers and generally navigating the world of home resale, I sold my New Hampshire condo on September 30th and I moved into my Minneapolis rental on October 3rd, 2019. 
Now, moving to a different part of the country meant I had to find all new people. Auto mechanic, hairstylist, doctors, dentists, not to mention new places. Bank, pharmacy, grocery stores, gym. Oh, it was daunting, but I made a list and started to tackle it one by one. I chose the city of Minneapolis uh, also for its cultural life. Even though I had attended the theater and the symphony in Boston over the years, with Exeter being an hour north, I had not done it with any regularity. Minneapolis seemed more approachable and I, I'd be able to live closer to all the city has to offer. So, I, with my rental being right downtown, I started going regularly to symphony concerts at Orchestra Hall, to theater productions at the Guthrie, and to dinner shows at, at the very intimate Dakota Jazz Club, with which I fell in love. I, I discovered the Minneapolis Women's Club right across the street from me. So I joined and started attending their weekly happy hours. Oh, the women I met there welcomed me with open arms. I was excited, feeling assured that I'd gained some lasting friendships. I signed up for a class at the Guthrie Theater where I met other actors and started to make connections in the Minneapolis theater scene, looking to find creative outlets for my background in theater. And like any good tourist, I stopped by the convention center and picked up countless brochures on cultural events, restaurants, and museums, all that I looked forward to experiencing. <laughs> I was happy to begin this new chapter of my life, and I was eager to make Minneapolis my new home. And then something completely unexpected happened. COVID. The city shut down and we were asked to stay home. Suddenly, the, the exploration of my new city came to a screeching halt. Now I spent time ordering things online and sewing face masks. And the family I'd moved halfway across the country to be near was once again removed as we practiced social distancing so close and yet so far. Then Memorial Day came and with it, the murder of George Floyd. Nonviolent protests organized to support the Black Lives Matter movement took place during the day. They were orderly and effective after dark, however, the peaceful protests broke down and the violence broke out, leading to destruction. And that's when things got scary. Now, being in Minneapolis, I was frightened by the smell of fires burning at night, wondering how close the, the violence would come to where I was living. Suddenly, I found myself wondering why I had ever left the peace and quiet and safety of sleepy little Exeter, New Hampshire. So 
when my cousin called and, and invited me to stay at their home an hour north of the city, despite the pandemic and the call for social distancing, <laughs> I jumped at the chance to get the hell out of Dodge. Unfortunately, I wasn't at my cousin's for 24 hours when I got a notice from my landlord saying that my lease was not being renewed as he wanted to put the condo up for sale. So I turned around and headed back to the city to begin looking for a new place to live. Once again, I found myself wondering, why did I leave New England? Back in Minneapolis, ugh, the streets that had started to become familiar to me were now transformed. The glass was smashed and almost all street level, level windows were covered with plywood. My new places of business, my, my bank, my pharmacy, they were all shut down from the destruction. Even my new library had been vandalized. This was the city to which I had moved just half a year prior. I did not relish the idea of house hunting during a pandemic, but I had no choice. I grabbed a mask, some hands hand sanitizer, and, and I ventured out to look for my new home. Since I did not have the luxury of time to explore various neighborhoods, I was lucky to find a newly renovated condo in the Lakes region on the outskirts of Minneapolis. I closed on my new home and was moved into it before the end of July. Fortunately, I landed in a great part of the city as there are several lakes within walking distance. And once things start opening up again, I still have access to the city's downtown cultural life. Now the start of a new year brings with it new hope that things will get better. But I saw hopeful signs already last summer when residents came out to clean up their city streets following the destruction. Driving around last June, I, I was heartened to see so many people coming together to paint the plywood boards covering the storefronts, not with graffiti, but with works of art, with beautiful murals conveying uh, messages of hope and courage and change. Who could have known? Who, who could have known that 2020 would bring us a worldwide pandemic? When I think back to what prompted my initial move, that half a hug from a friend, I'm struck with the realization that now I'm not getting any hugs at all. <laughs> you know, when COVID first hit, I wondered if I picked the wrong time to leave New England. But the further we've gotten into this pandemic, the more I realize I'm, I'm exactly where I should be, as it's the loving support of the family now around me that's helping me get through this. Hindsight's 2020, and even though half a hug may be better than no hug at all, I'm I'm holding out for the time when we can get back to the comfort of full-on hugs, when I can hug my family and friends and social distancing becomes a 
distant memory. Well done, Kate. Aren't we all looking forward to that moment? Yes, I um, give you a virtual hug right now. Can you feel it? We're all giving you a hug. <laughs> Thanks for um, clarifying the situation here. <laughs> Next up, we've got another mover and a shaker, um, Karen Fitzgerald. Now, she recently returned to the seacoast to live in Kittery, Maine. Karen is an actress, singer, writer, and public speaking coach who graced the stages of Portsmouth, New Hampshire before moving to New York City 16 years ago. While there, she wrote and produced her solo show, Hot Mama Mahatma, and her cabaret show, The Goddess Review. <laughs> I'd like to see those. At the end of May this year, she had a decision to make, to stay in her beloved city during the pandemic or to flee to somewhere safer. But during quarantine, where could she go? And even if she had another place to move to, how would she get there? Let's listen to her story, Escape from New York, to find out how Karen did it. <laughs> okay, Karen, come on up. I got a surprise phone call in February. It was my sister which wasn't unusual because we're close. But the shock was that she wanted to come visit me in March. Now my sister lives outside of Buffalo, New York and I lived in New York City. And I thought, we never travel. We never travel in the wintertime because you know, it's Buffalo, it's New York, it's the snow, it's the weather, it's all of that. So she said, I have some days off and I really want to come and it's going to be around March 12th. Is that okay with you? And I said, sure. So she got a ticket on Amtrak and a couple of days before she was supposed to come, she calls me up in a panic and she says, you know, we're really nervous up here about coming, me coming down to New York. She said, why don't you take my Amtrak ticket and come and stay with us for a while? And I said, oh, you know, I'll come up. Glad to take the ticket. Thank you so much. But I said, you know, this is just another flu. I said, you know, four days, I'll come up for four days and that'll be it. So I packed four days worth of clothes. And I got up there, Amtrak brought me up. And that night, Governor Cuomo shut down New York City, shut down Broadway, shut down the restaurants, shut down everything. And that was my neighborhood. I lived in the theater district in New York. So I realized at that moment, this was like a little miracle. I was almost like airlifted on Amtrak out of the city. And I landed upstate New York in a beautiful area because they live outside the city, sort of in ski country. And they have this big sprawling farmhouse and they gave me the whole upstairs because their kids were all grown and out. And it was my sister and brother-in-law and I get along great with them. So I had company. They have like the back 40 on their house. They have, they have wooded areas. They have lovely roads to walk on. So I was getting outside every day. But I was listening to the news and they kept talking about New York and the governor was on every day. And instead of the four days I was supposed to be up there, I wound up being up there for two and a half months. And while I was up there, my sister said, well, you know, you sure you want to move back to the city? I had never wanted to leave the city. Once I got there, I loved it. I loved every single day of it. I loved the diversity. I loved getting on the subway and the black people and the white people and the Asian people and the Muslims and the Christians and the Jews. Every, everybody lives in New York. And it was very exciting to me. 
So I couldn't make the decision, but we did look at apartments up in Buffalo and I just couldn't quite embrace it. I was raised in Buffalo. It was fine. My sister was there, but I didn't know anybody else. So I said, well, let me go back to New York and figure this out. So I went down in May and I landed, took the Amtrak back down and landed in Penn Station. And it was almost empty. Now, if any of you have ever been to New York and been in Penn Station, it's a mess. It's chaos. It's people. It's it's nuts. But that's New York. And the shops now were shut down. There were few people in the building. I took my suitcase and I walked out onto the street and I decided to walk home instead of taking the subway because it was about 15 blocks away. And as I'm walking, there were very few people in the street. There were some desolate men, not homeless, but just sad. And so I got home, it was pretty much the same thing. And I walked up the two flights of stairs to my apartment and I got into my adorable apartment, which I had always loved. It was my refuge after my divorce. It was just a very special place. But I looked around at my two room apartment and I said, I can't go through this. If this is what it's gonna be and it's gonna be this in the fall, I can't go through this. But I called my sister and I told her that. And she said, well, you know, you could come back up here. But she said, you'd have to quarantine first. She said, you know, now that you're in New York, we can't really have you come back without quarantining. And I couldn't quarantine at her house. So I couldn't find anywhere. We went to a bed and breakfast. The guy said, yes, we'll take you in. Then he got nervous because of some stuff. His son said, you know, she's going to get, if she gets COVID, you can't kick her out. She's going to be there. So there was this thing about where do I go? What do I do? But in the meantime, I had already talked to my landlord. He's a great guy. He helped me get a mover. I got the mover. I was set for three weeks hence. I was going to leave in three weeks. And I just started making plans. And I thought, well, what should I do? I can't really, I can't go to Buffalo. I can't quarantine anywhere. And then I went for a walk on the Hudson River with my friend Ayadeli. And she's this very spiritual African-American woman. And she said, well, what do you want? Like, where do you really want to go? And I said, I think I want to go back to the seacoast. I want to go. I used to do a ton of theater in Portsmouth. You know, I, was, I had friends there, the South Church, all of that. I said, I want to go back, but I want to live in Kittery. And I said, so what do I do about that? She said, let's pray to my favorite goddess, the goddess of the river. She's the goddess of the river in Nigeria, and her name is Oshun. But she says she wants details. So you have to tell her exactly what you want. So I said, okay, Kittery. I gave her the price, which was so ridiculously cheap for Kittery. It was ridiculous. But I gave her the price. I gave her description. And she, we prayed over the Hudson River. She's praying to Oshun. And she said, it is done. You will know by tomorrow. So I thought, great. This is fantastic. So I go home, just in case. And I put it on Facebook, Kittery, the price, the whole thing. And that night, I get a phone call from a woman I sort of know, not very well. And she calls me up and she says, well, what are you thinking? You know, I have a house in Kittery. And I, told, and I said, well, you saw the price. I can't really do more. And she pondered. And she said, well, I usually get so much more than that for the summer rentals. But she said, everybody canceled on me. So why don't you take it? Great. But this is fantastic. So, so we're planning that. And meanwhile... All of this is going on and I've got the movers coming. So the day comes when the movers are supposed to come. But before that, I had to make a decision how to get out of New York. 
Well, usually if you live in New York City, it's so convenient because, you know, when you're in New York, you can get planes, trains, automobiles to anywhere in the world, even nonstop. But now going out of New York was a different story. And when you used to leave New York as a New Yorker, you were considered cool. Now I had the cooties. Nobody wanted me. It wasn't going to be. My sister, my daughter was supposed to come down to New York and help me. She didn't come down. She was too scared. My sister was going to come down and help me. She didn't come down. She was too scared. So I made the decision. Okay, I'm going to Kittery. This is great. I tried to get out of the city and I contacted Amtrak. Well, they had trains going to Boston, but I had no car and I had nobody who was willing to pick me up in Boston. So that was out. Then there was a great bus line that I always took straight from New York right up to Portsmouth. They had stopped serving New York City several months before. So I called a car rental company, national car rental company that has a huge presence in New York. They've got, they've got stores everywhere. Call them up, make a reservation. I'm ready to go. Okay, they said, pick it up. Eight o'clock the morning I was gonna move. So I have the address, it's right near Grand Central Station. And I walk over there because I'm not taking the subway and I have no car and the cabs aren't running. So I walk over there and there's nobody at the car place. It is locked up and nobody's around. And I looked around and I thought, well, what am I going to do? Then I saw a guy parking lot attendant, like across the street. And I said to him, where's the enterprise people? And he said, oh, they shut that down months ago. And I said, I'm supposed to get a car. And he said, well, let me look it up on my computer. So he looks it up and he said, okay, 57th Street. He said, go there. Well, I went, I had to go home first because the movers were there and they're moving stuff out. So I call 57th Street. I get a voicemail saying, we are shut down. There's nobody here. I couldn't get a number to, to get a call to get, where am I supposed to go? Meanwhile, the movers are moving my bed out. They're moving my futon out. They're moving everything in my apartment into the, into the truck. And I'm thinking, oh, oh, you know, this is unbelievable. So I keep calling. And the car company was Enterprise. And I kept getting voice messages and nobody, and I've got this confirmation. Finally, after the movers left, after my apartment was empty, I reached somebody in one of the two stores that was still open in Manhattan. And they said, well, if you get over here by four o'clock, we, we can have a car for you. So I had to walk quite a distance to get the car. I got the car, didn't have enough gas in it. I got home, got to my house because I had to empty stuff up, but I couldn't park in the street because you can't park in the street in New York. So I had to park in a parking garage near me that cost me $58 for two hours of parking while I filled it up with my personal belongings. I, I had to find, then I had to find a gas station because there are, there are not many gas stations in New York City. Nobody has a car. I find a gas station, fill it up, get on the road, drive, the five hours to Kittery and arrived at one o'clock in the morning, exhausted. So I climb the stairs to bed, I conk out, I come downstairs the next morning in the house and I open the windows in the back of the house and I'm standing on a beautiful deck overlooking the river. The goddess had delivered me to a river. And that's how I got back. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. That was um, beautiful imagery. Um, 
from chaos to serenity. We're <laughs> glad you're back in town. <laughs> um, well, those are our three storytellers. And now if you have questions that you want to ask, um, you can put them in chat. Amy's gonna be going through some questions and she'll be conducting a Q&A um, coming right up. So Amy, I give it over to you. Thank you very much, Pat. That is great. So again, um, there's already been some questions put into the chat, but keep them coming and I will try to stay organized, see how many we can get through. Um, let us start with one for Saul. Um, actually, we'll, we'll do two, they're, they're kind of related. So Saul, um, Gail, first of all, just wanted to know when did this story happen? When is it that you were in Poland? If you can unmute and tell us. This was in 2012. Yeah. And then the second part here, um, Wendy wanted to know what happened to Willie, especially did you keep, did you continue to have a relationship with him beyond this trip and, and what happened with him? Go ahead. I saw Willie one more time. Um, I saw him in, in Connecticut at his daughter's house. Uh, uh, right, right before I went to Poland again, which was 2014, I would say, uh, Willie died in 2018. Uh, he was 92 years old at that time. Beautiful. Um, I'm going to ask Karen. Um, Mimi wants to know more about the goddess. What's her name? Who is she? What do you know about her? Karen. Okay. Uh, the goddess Oshun, actually, I mean, this is a little bit of trivia. The goddess Oshun is the goddess that Beyonce prays to all the time. So if you see her in the golden things that she comes out on stage with, that is in tribute to the goddess. She is, so my friend Ayadeli, who I spoke about, uh, is one of the founders of the National Black Theater in Manhattan. And they, their founder took a whole group of women of them over to Nigeria several years ago, like this was 40 some years ago now. And they went to praise her in a particular river in Nigeria where she sort of has dominance over the river. She's the goddess of fertility and sexuality. So the women all went swimming in the water and they came back and they all got pregnant. <laughs> like this, they all delivered babies nine months later and they all raised the babies in community and everything else. But she is a very powerful goddess, a very sensual goddess, and she, um, and also the goddess of the river. And that is what I know about her. I wanna know more, I've been looking her up. So that's it. <laughs> Hope that helps. Yes, thank you for sharing her with us. Um, I'm going to ask Kate something. Um, I'll say first, Kate, that the, you know, silver linings here are that folks who have moved away can still join us. Um, I, what was it like to be back with us and feel in this community again, despite your having moved away? Want to say a little bit about that? Well, I, I'm happy to be back uh, via Zoom, at least. <laughs> um, and, you know, when you, when, Amy, when you contacted me last fall and, uh, you know, said that if I had any stories, I, you know, you'd 
you'd like to hear them. I, that's when I said, well, actually I'm no longer there. So I wasn't sure that um, I'd be able to, you know, uh, be in this storytelling group anymore since I'm no longer a technically a New England person. But um, yeah, as you say, the, there is some silver linings uh, that we just have to look for. And uh, this is one of them. So it's been great. Um, it's given me uh, something to focus on uh, while, I, uh, I, while I isolate. So thank you. Yeah, and it is great to have you. When you when I contacted you and you wrote me back and you sort of just were telling me what happened and I said, oh my gosh, if that isn't a story, I don't know what one is. Uh, so it's great that you worked on it and brought it to us. Yeah, it's been a process, <laughs> but a learning experience, as uh, Sister Margaret Mary would say, and a learning experience. So thank. You. Ah, uh, yes, another growth opportunity. So Saul, um, I have one for you. There was a, a um, line in your story. <clears throat> I believe Willie was talking about how you weren't going on a vacation, you were witnessing history. And that really struck me as how like the past year has felt almost every single day. <laughs> Like, oh God, make a note of this. Someone's going to ask me someday um, that we're all in the middle of that. And I wonder what that was like for you to be, you know, writing this story and did it feel connected to this moment? Is that part of what brought it up for you? Um, well, so this is one of about six stories uh, that are related either to my visiting Poland or to my Polish family who, who died in the Holocaust. So, um, so I always knew I was going to write about Willie. Um, and I've been working on this story for a long time. But one thing that happened during this, uh, this period is I started writing down more of my stories, right? Like a lot of times I'm like a storyteller. I do, I go out and I tell a story every month and then sometimes I never get it on paper, but this pandemic gave me a lot of time to actually write out. So there is a written version and it's quite different. It's a little bit different. Um, structurally it's the same, but it's like every time I write a story, it, it's just different than when you, it's not conversational. You know, I have to make it conversational when I tell it. Thanks, Saul. Um, Karen, folks would like to know if you're happy in Kittery and if you're working yet on, on you know, doing any theater projects or, or anything like that. What are you up to here? Thank you. Well, <laughs> I'm currently setting up some public speaking classes uh, up here, which is great. I'm thrilled to be back here because the, the short story I left, I didn't want to leave the seacoast. I had gone through a divorce and um, speaking of spirituality and intuition and all of that, um, I was getting very strong intuitions. Like I was going to be moving someplace bigger and I didn't know where it was going to be. And through a whole other story, an apartment dropped in my lap in New York city. And, and I stayed there for 16 years. It was a great time learning expert. Talk about a learning experience. It was amazing. 
Um, and then, but I love the seacoast. And so when I was looking at my options, which was really Buffalo or here, um, I know, I still know people up here. I have friends up here and I'd stayed kind of connected in the time I was gone. So when I came back, it just felt like home. It just felt like home. And in terms of theater, I probably will do something again, uh, but <laughs> you know, people aren't doing much with theater these days. So I, I hope to be, and also to be doing some singing somewhere because I'm a singer. And I was with the Funky Divas of Gospel as a soloist for many years. So, you know, yeah, all of that. I hope to be re-engaging. Thanks. Fabulous. We'll be really excited to hear when those things start to become possible again. Um, Kate, here's a question from um, related to sort of our secondary community here, the True Tales Live workshop community. Um, what has it been like? This isn't the first time that you've gone through our workshop process. And how do you feel about doing that, about working on your story um, through coming to our workshops? Uh, I think the workshops are great. They, they've helped me um, uh, very much uh, in developing stories, you know, and uh, stories have evolved through the through the workshops. Um, you know, like when I first came to you with this story, I, I said, uh, you know, I, I like to have some distance um, from my stories. You know, I, I usually tell stories that happened to me a, a long time ago. And I feel like I'm still living this story. <laughs> I'm still very much living it. And, you know, I, uh, well, I shared, um, you know, with you and Pat, uh, Amy, you know, um, editions of my, or versions of my story. And originally it, the ending was, was kind of, you know, a downer because, I did not end on a on a positive note necessarily, and I I shared the story with you know some friends and and uh, people here, and they said, "No, Kate, you have to <laughs> you have to look for a a better, more positive ending." And so that's why I I like to be somewhat removed from my experiences in order to see the whole picture. It's hard to tell a story when you're right in the middle of it, but um, we, we do, we do what we have to do. So the, the workshops are, are great in that they give uh, that sort of feedback, tell you how to shape the story and how to keep it going. Good. We're happy to hear that. And I think what you said is really, um, I mean, in general, it definitely helps to have some distance. And it's been a kind of funny time where we've had a number of stories recently that are about what's happening now and and that have worked really well. And that's not always how it, how it goes. There's something about this moment in time when it seems to be important to work this out through story. Um, so I'm not sure why, something we can all think about. Um, Saul, 
I have a question for you here. One thing that didn't really come out in your story was how did the high school kids react to your teaching and this trip and, you know, what? Yeah. That's the thing about, you know, doing a group, having a group of stories, like there's things that I explain in other stories. So I don't want to explain them in this one because I usually tell this one with some of the others. But um, in our intended trip in 2012 with the sites that we wanted to hit in Poland, um, we did have to sometimes stop with certain kinds of sites because it became overwhelming uh, and emotionally unpredictable. Um, a student fainted um at a, a a railway a transit station like it wasn't even a, a concentration camp or anything like that a student fainted and we were going to go to belchick that you know like a, a real like a killing field that that night and we canceled that you know and like just took the weekend to just like do fun things in old warsaw and things like that so you had to have a barometer all the time about how the kids were were feeling about things um, and the second time I went in 2014, for some reason, um, the, the kids weren't as strongly affected um, as, as the earlier time. I'm not sure why that was. And another thing that's like really tragic is that if you, if you go to, you know, if you go to Auschwitz the first time, it's completely overwhelming. The second time you go to Auschwitz, it's already a little bit normalized, you know, because you become familiar with stuff. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really hard thing doing that kind of journey. Um, even, even in the planning though, we had to figure out, okay, when are we going to do the festive stuff? And when are we going to like see the hardest history? Yeah, I'm sure. Um, we're going to be wrapping up the Q&A here in a minute. Um, I wanted to actually give Saul a chance for you to tell us more about where you do tell stories. Because um, I know I know you that you do. So you could tell us how to keep up with your work. Well, I so I have this series songs and stories, which which was at um, a venue in uh, in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. And I also told on the first Friday of every month at a, at a place in Middletown, Connecticut, with a group called Story City, uh, which Nina Lasiga, who's here tonight, has, she's frequently told with me in, in many venues, the Institute Library in New Haven. So I tell all over Connecticut, especially. But um, but since COVID, um, I moved Songs and Stories to be an online event. Um, and we've done two of them online. And we did one masked in person. Um, but it's it's becoming hard for me. Just I, I love being there with a the microphone and seeing the audience. And um, I'm going through through a period where it's 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 it, it's hard for me to tell the story to the little um, camera on my laptop. You know, I'm I I got used to that, and now I'm I'm just so craving the end of all this when we can when we can be there with microphones and that kind of energy. And, you know, you always see the different people in the audience and their different little reactions. And, and you feel this sort of energy from being around people. When, when I lived in New York City, when I would write, I wouldn't write in my apartment. I would always go to a coffee shop or, or the New York Public Library's main reading room because something about the energy of other people also engaged in that kind of activity is, is very stimulating. Um, 
and I miss coffee shops. I miss performance, you know? So that's, that's the long answer. Um, I try to, to continually keep telling stories in the venues that are still online. Um, but, I'm ready to return with a bang to uh, the Buttonwood Tree Cafe in Middletown and um, the Institute Library in New Haven and those other places where I usually tell stories. Yeah, we hear you, Saul. <laughs> so we're going to be wrapping up this portion of the show. Um, I want to tell you a few things here. Um, first of all, just thank you for being with us tonight our storytellers and our active, expressive audience that make our tellers feel less alone, right? Woo, yay. Um, we're soon to move to the backstory interview where David Freiner is going to continue the conversation that you've been hearing with Saul. Um, so stay with us for that. It's a 15 minute interview. But first, let me tell you that we have a whole year of shows planned for you. Even if they've got to be on Zoom, that's the plan here. Our next True Tales live Zoom show, Tuesday, February 23rd, 7 p.m. Um, you can register. All the links to register will be at truetaleslivenh.org. We need tellers for most of our upcoming shows. Um, and we really uh, encourage coming to a, a workshop first because not only can you get help with your piece, but you can try out Zoom, which is different. And uh, the next one is February 2nd, uh, 7 to 8.30. And again, you can find the links to register, truetaleslivenh.org. You can watch us on Portsmouth Public Media TV, Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 and Saturdays at 1. And anytime is video on demand or a podcast. And all of those options are really easy to access on our website, truetaleslivenh.org. A couple of thank yous going out. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, David Frainer, Sarah Bedingfield, Sam Adams, and Kamisha Foley. We would not do this without you. Um, I am Amy Antonucci. And before we move on to the backstory, the 15 minute interview of Saul, Please join us for a minute of movement and fun. We're going to stretch and get up with our new tradition, the True Tales Live One Minute Dance Party. Um, you might want to switch to gallery view and stand up. And tonight, rather than showing us the pictures of other people dancing, we're just going to get to watch each other. John's going to record us dancing. Let's do it and make it fun. You ready, John? Okay. 